This is our fourth Sunday, and our fourth Sunday we look to the theme. Thank you, Brother Conrad, for leading us in that. Our theme this year is from the hymn, O Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Hopefully by now you have most of the words memorized by heart that you could sing it without a hymn book. It's a rich hymn. It's an amazing hymn. And this, as we are wrapping up the last four months of the year, brings us into the last line, the last phrase or the last verse of this hymn, starting with the words, O oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. That's our focus this morning. We're going to be looking at that rich thought and consider what does the Word of God teach in relation to, O oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Certainly, you can get the idea through our Brother Conrad's songs that we're going to be thinking a lot about God's grace in our lesson this morning. One of the keys to unlocking this phrase on the screen is understanding the word grace, how that word grace is used and how, what, really what that word grace means. Oftentimes when we talk about God's grace, we talk about it in terms of salvation, that we're saved by the grace of God. Certainly here in Ephesians chapter 2, we see that twice in this context. In verse 4 of Ephesians 2, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Down in verse 8, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And so certainly when we find that word grace, it's associated with our salvation, the forgiveness of our sins. But that's not the only way that word grace is used. In fact, that's not the only meaning of the word. Our phrase on the screen helps us to see that there's a much broader understanding and use of that word grace that connects to a daily demonstration of this grace. The Old Testament word for grace is our word chanan, and it means to stoop down, to bend down low, and to extend favor. You get the idea of someone who is passing around through town, someone of power and prominence and nobility, and he sees someone who is maybe more destitute, and he stops and bends down and gives a gift simply out of the kindness and goodness in his heart. That's our Old Testament word. In the New Testament, we find the word charis. We get our word charity from there, and it simply means a gift. So if we take those two words, which our Bible uses for grace, and we put them together, we might find a more rounded definition that kind of looks like this, that grace is a deliberate decision to give something good to someone who doesn't deserve it. In fact, from the standpoint of God to man, we just can't deserve it. Certainly, this then applies to salvation. God's grace is seen in the fact that he gave Jesus. He gave the blood of his son. He gave us Calvary. He has given us the forgiveness of our sins. That's all true. But you think about what we just sang. Think of that phrase. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Daily. How day by day we taste, we see, we experience the goodness, the good gifts of our God in abundance. For instance, just one, one little way we could illustrate this. In Acts 17 and verse 25, Paul is preaching and he says that God, he's not served by human hands, although he need, as though he needed anything, Notice, since he himself gives to all life, God gives life, the gift of our very existence. Maybe you haven't thought about this too much. It's one thing that will keep you up late at night. But you think about the fact of all the people who could ever exist in the pages of human history, you and me, we get to be part of that. That God allowed us the gift of life, that we get to be here, and it's not just that we just get to live. There's only going to be one Jordan Shouse. You don't have to say amen. I understand that. But every one of us are unique and special, and God gave us that amazing opportunity. 
that amazing gift simply of life and of living. He says that God gives to all breath. That's the idea of sustenance. God who sustains us. And so lungs that breathe and the heart that beats and the mind that thinks and you don't have to tell it to do so. Roofs over our heads and food on the table. God takes care of us every single day. And I love the last phrase. It's just too big to be able to describe it. All things. God who gives us our abundance. Everything that could be said in there. That James 1.17, that every good thing we have. Think about it. You can start listing it in your mind. Every good thing. Family, that's a good thing. Friends, that's a good thing. Coffee this morning at 9 a.m. in the morning, that's a great thing. Every good thing God has given to us, it comes from one source. God who has given us our abundance. Can you see then that when we say, oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be, the good gifts of God flow every day. I, I like the language that Jeremiah would use in Lamentations 3 when he says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I love that idea that the goodness and the mercy and the kindness of God, those words always are kind of found together. Grace and mercy, grace and love, grace and kindness. Just as every morning you go outside and you find the dew on the grass, every morning the goodness, the kindness, the mercy of God, the grace of God is seen in full abundance. So, God's grace. God's grace is good gifts given to his people. The other word to unlocking the meaning of this phrase that we're considering this morning is the word debtor. And that kind of catches off, off, off guard a little bit because in our minds we might see that as we use that phrase and say, well, it seems like what he's saying is we have to work really hard to pay God back for the good things he's given to us, and that's far from what the Scripture teaches. Even if, even if we did everything perfectly from here to the end of our life, we, we live perfectly according to the law of God, we did every righteous deed that we could, we memorized the Scripture, we worship with all of our hearts, not one of us could pay God back for one sin that he has forgiven that's not the point. In fact, even here in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Notice, it, it's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And so the phrase debtor, as we're considering this morning, what I really think the author's getting at is this. When you recognize how good you have it, when you recognize the source of all the good gifts that you have in your life, the only expression one could simply have is desperate thanks from a God who is so generous and so good to someone so undeserving. That's what he's getting at. But I'll tell you this. I mean, that would be the end of the sermon, but we got a little more I want to explore with you. That phrase debtor is fascinating, isn't it? Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Obviously, we can't pay God back. That's not what he's saying. Have you ever wondered, though, what should be our response to God's grace? Like, what does those good gifts and that kind, generous mercy of God, what does that demand of us in response? That's where we get to Titus chapter 2. Because in Titus chapter 2, we're going to spend the rest of our time here. I need you in your Bibles in Titus chapter 2. That's really what Paul is talking about here. God's grace appears, and what you find through this whole section, then, is what that ought to do. What change that ought to bring, what response that ought to prompt in the lives of God's people. We're in Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. 
Titus 2, beginning in verse 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds." These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Keep on going. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Ooh, it's a rich section here. I want you just a, just a couple things to notice this morning. What does the amazing, good, incredible gifts of God demand in response? Well, I think we would say, firstly, the thankful heart. Thankfulness ought to stem right from it. I want you to notice again, just listen to what Paul says the grace of God has done to us. In verse 11, it says it has brought salvation to all men. In verse 13, it has brought a blessed hope of the coming and the glory of Christ Jesus. In verse 14, it has redeemed us from the lawless deeds in in which we once belonged. In chapter 3, in verse 5, he saved us. In verse 6, he has poured out Jesus upon us. And in verse 7, that we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I think the summary of all of this is really good from what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 15. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gifts. How could you describe this? Free from our sins, liberated from our past lives, given a hope and a promise of things to come. It's thankfulness. Thankfulness to God for his abundant goodness to us. Here's the thing. A thankful heart counts as blessings, not as problems. If you find someone who moans and bemoans, they're not counting their blessings. A thankful heart looks to and recognizes the good in others, the goods that they have given. Thankfulness flushes the heart of any kind of selfish pride or selfish living. I love our brother D used to say that thank and think are kin. They both have a relation to thought. To think a good thought is what thanks is all about. When you say thank you, you are actually saying, I think good thoughts about your favor to me. Think of that. Thanks be to God. What am I thinking about God and his relation to me? Because brethren, when we give thanks for the abundant mercies of God, the psalmist would say best, we magnify the Lord. That phrase magnify, sometimes we talk about that magnify, about taking something really small and making it big. You take a magnifying glass and you put it over an ant and it makes it look really big. That's one way it's used, but the other way, it's not with a magnifying glass, it's with a telescope. 
and you see something that is big, as big as it really is. You see a planet, and to our eyes, without any lens, it seems really small, but through the lens of a telescope, you see the majesty and the, and the great nature of this amazing host. That's what the psalmist says we do through giving thanks. And so when I look at my blessings, and I don't just say, I'm just a lucky guy. I, I just lucked out. I just worked real hard. I didn't come from anything. We rob God of the glory that he is due. We ought to be able to say, all that I am and all that I have came from one source. It's because he's great. He is who I am today, the reason I am. He's the reason I have what I have. I'm giving glory. I'm magnifying God. He's a great God. He is an amazing God. If you see something worth praising in my life, what you need to do is praise the Lord. And so a thankful heart ought to stem from a response of grace. You also see in this context a changed life because in verse 12 he says the grace of God appeared instructing us. The grace of God didn't appear just to take away our sins and then to leave us as we were. I'm going to take away your sins. I'm paying the debt. Now go your way. The grace of God was designed to take away our sins, but then to make us something different, to make us better than we ever were before. And there's two ways he describes that here. In one sense, he talks about keeping away from the things that brought death. That's right down there in verse 12. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. What's he saying? Well, think it through. Anything that promotes evil, anything that in, endorses rebellion, anything and any hint that suggests sin and darkness, I'm not going to pursue, I'm not going to endorse, I'm not going to allow in my life the things that Jesus came to die for. A change has to happen. A change in my thoughts, a change in my habits, a change in my friendships, a change in my pursuits. Something has to change. In chapter 3, he talks about it with our relationships. He says in verse 2, notice, to malign no one, to be peaceful, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Who does no one include? Everyone. You catch that? So even if they vote different from me, even if they're running for office and I don't think like the things that they're standing for. Even if we don't agree on the word of God and our understanding and application of the word of God. He says, malign no one. Which is saying what? This grace was to make a difference in us. Not only is it keeping us from the things that we once lived in and it destroyed who we are. I'm not going to use this forgiven, liberated life and tongue to curse and destroy another. You notice in verse 3, he says, that's how I used to be. That, that was a life I used to live. That, that used to be me. Well, what happened? Well, something changed. Was it the law changed, and now the things that were now wrong are right? No, no. I changed. Because you just decided to be good? Because you just decided all of a sudden to pursue things that were right? No, did you notice in chapter 2 and verse 11... And in chapter 3 and verse 4, it says, but when the grace of God appeared, then when I heard the gospel, that when I understood what we just ate and we just drank about a God who loves me and died for me, something changed. That, that whole life, that whole identity, that whole way of thinking changed. To where what could be said of us, what should be said of us, is what was said of the apostles. 
Because those Jews, when they saw those apostles and the way that they were teaching and living, it says when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. Notice, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Isn't that the designation or the definition of grace? There's something different about you. I'm noticing you've been with Jesus. There's something different in your habits. There's something different in your language. There's something different in your life. There is, because the grace of God appeared, and I'm not the man I used to be. Not anymore. But it's not just keeping away from the things that brought death. It's also pursuing the things that bring life. I think for some reason, we get this idea that because there's grace, grace nullifies any obedience. It doesn't really matter if you obey God. God's not concerned with law-keeping anymore. Grace does away with that. You know how completely contrary that is to everything Paul is saying here? It's not that now that grace appears, you don't have to worry about how you live. It's actually the opposite. Because grace appeared, you care even more about how you live. You're even more concerned. You're even more zealous about doing the right things. Notice that in verse 12. It's not only that we're denying things that were wrong, the worldly desires uh, and ungodliness. Notice he says, but we are to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. He says down in verse 13 that we are looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Why? He who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Those who are zealous for good deeds. In chapter 3 and verse 1, you are to be ready for every good deed. And verse 8, that those who believe with God will be careful, careful to engage in good deeds. You hear what he's saying? The grace of God doesn't make us apathetic about God's commands. It does the complete opposite. The grace of God makes me all the more on fire, zealous to do what's right. Why? Because he saved me. Because he forgave me. I don't want to waste any more of my life. I wasted so much time on things that were destructive and dark and dangerous, but now that I've been set free, I don't want to waste another moment doing anything that would break my God's heart. I'm going to pursue him and follow him. Am I trying to earn it and deserve it? No, no. Because he loved me and gave his son for me, I'm devoting my life to him. You know, it's fascinating, those of you who are here at 9 a.m., you might have caught this. Just an observation, if you will. And I may be wrong on this. It's just, just my think so, as if, I'm, if I'm listening close enough. You know how fascinating it is that times change, generations change, and the thinking of each generation changes? Majority of the songs that we sang at 9 a.m. were invitation songs, and the majority of those songs were older. And a lot of those songs talked about what we need to do how we ought to behave and act, preparing for that verse 13 of that coming of Jesus. But if you listen to a lot of the newer songs, the songs of this generation, it's far less what you have to do, and it's more of what God, what God has done. That I'm a sinner, and God has freed me. God has redeemed me. God has loved me and rescued me. Both are very much true, but you see then how important it is for us to have a balanced perspective of the things that we are listening and singing and teaching one another. To have obedience without Jesus is really to try and be a Jew again and to save ourselves. But to only talk about Jesus and what he has done without our response, our response in return, about being zealous for good deeds, about pursuing him, being careful to do what is right, leaves us adrift, aimless, purposeless. 
Because here's one thing, and I think we need to be honest about it. I think what a lot of us struggle with is grace has, for, has changed who we are, and yet we tend to gravitate towards an old identity. You hear things like, I'm just, I'm just a sinner. I'm a sinful person. I'm a sinner. In fact, if you're visiting today, you, you're welcome here because we're just a group of sinners who are here. I believe what we mean to say is no one's perfect. It's probably what we mean to say. But the problem is if we identify ourselves as sinners, it's kind of like a child who was an orphan and they are adopted and then they continue to claim to be an orphan. But you belong. But you've been chosen. You have a new name. You have a new home. You have a new destiny. You're not an orphan anymore. You're a child. You belong. When Paul wrote to the brethren at Philippi in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1, you notice he didn't say, to the sinners at Philippi. He said, to the saints and the elders and the deacons. Brethren, if we have obeyed the gospels, we're not sinners anymore. We're saints. It doesn't mean that we don't fall and that we don't sin. John says, if anyone says that he has no sin, he lies. That's not what it is. And it's not claiming, I did that, I did that. I am so righteous. The reason I can claim to be a saint is because I did all that on my own. No, I, I'm just claiming what Paul claimed. I am who I am by the grace of God. I think a good summary of this is what John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, said about this verse. He says, I'm not what I ought to be, how imperfect and deficient I am. I'm not what I wish to be, although I pour that which is evil and cleave to that which is good. I'm not what I hope to be, but soon I will be out of mortality, and with it all sin and imperfection. But although I'm not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor yet what I hope to be, I can truly say I'm not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. I can join with the Apostle Paul and say I am what I am by the grace of God. Isn't that what it is? I, I am not the person I used to be, praise God for his amazing grace. I'm not that man anymore. But I'm not all that I can be. I'm not perfect in Christ. And so we keep pressing on. And at the heart of Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And notice, and the life I now live. I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What are you saying? Well, Christ freed me by his grace. So now what? Now what? That's the question. Now what? What do you do with that freed life? What do you do with that redemptive soul? It is a life that is poured in complete devotion and praise and focus on the Lord. Zealous for what is right. There's a change in me because of God's grace. Thirdly, there's a merciful mind. He says to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration to all men in chapter 3 and verse 2. You would imagine that those who receive the mercy and the grace of God would be the most merciful and gracious people that exist. That is not just what happens. I think what happens a lot to a lot of us is like what a, was in the police station in Atlanta. There was a sign in this police station that said, in God we trust and everyone else we polygraph. And I think that's how some of us live. Ask Ross what a polygraph is. Do you remember the story that Jesus told in Matthew 18? There was a servant who owed a king an impossible debt and he couldn't pay it back. But the king, simply out of compassion, released the debt, let him be free, let him go back to his life. And so on his way, completely forgiven, a new life before him, he's going and he meets another slave who owes him a much smaller debt. 
He had just tasted the amazing grace of a king, being given something he could never deserve. And when he meets this new servant, what is his response? He demands payment. He demands to be paid back. And when it's not given, he casts him into prison. And Jesus' response is this. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. The grace of God demands a change in us. And it's not just a change from that which was sin to now that which is righteous and pursuing God. There's a change in how we treat and relate with one another, brethren. Look, verse 3 used to be me. If you hurt me, I'm done with you. If you turn your back on me, I'm, I'm cursing you. You stab me in the back, I'm going to stab you in the front. You hurt me, we're going to get even revenge. But something happened. But the grace of God appeared. Now, I would imagine, brethren, if I have needed grace upon grace upon grace, so do my neighbors and so do you if I have needed that grace and that patience from my God from my family and my brethren so have you there's that scene in, in John 8 where these Jews these Pharisees have found a woman guilty of adultery and they drag her to Jesus, and they have one thing in their heart, and their one response is, kill her, kill her. They come ready to stone this woman who's been caught in sin, and Jesus' response is not to stone the woman. He forgives her. He asks, where are those who condemn you? Are there any left? And she says, none, Lord. And he goes, neither do I condemn you. He forgives her, but then he admonishes her, go your way and sin no more. Listen, had Jesus not stepped in, there would have been a dead woman, but what happened? Out of grace and teaching, she changed. Galatians 6 and verse 1 says this, if anyone falls, if anyone, let's get in our Bibles, let's get together. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. I want us to read this one together. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Here's what Apostle Paul writes. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Apostle Paul writes, brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass you who are spiritual restore them in a spirit of gentleness brethren brethren i can't reach down to restore someone who is lost when those hands are full of rocks If my response is to separate from myself anyone who has ever sinned or stumbled i'm going to live this life alone The grace of God demands something different out of me. Without God's grace, Saul's would never become Paul's. I, I have to believe this. I have to believe that even in those who disappoint me and let me down and struggle, I have to believe that God is good and God is powerful and through God's grace and time and instructions that people are going to grow. That who they are today is not who they're going to be in the time that Jesus returns. There's an author who wrote about marriage, and this is what he says, and every enduring marriage involves an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. 
How much more true is that to this bride here? We're committed to each other, realizing we're not perfect. No, we're not sinners. We're not walking in the ways of the world, but that doesn't mean we're perfect. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also what? You could forgive others. You probably should. But he says you must. What's Paul saying? Forgiven people forgive people. Lord, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. The way I treat you, good brethren, and the way you treat me, especially in the moments of crisis and sin, is going to indicate how it is we walk through this journey together. I'm going to have to believe through patience and kindness and grace, wherever we are today is not where we're going to end when Jesus returns. Better days will come. Growth will come if just given time and grace and patience. And that's where we end. A confident future. He says, looking for the blessed hope in verse 13, looking for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of Christ Jesus, our God and Savior, Christ Jesus. One of the questions that often wrestles through our minds is, can I know I'm saved? If, if Jesus were to return today, can I know for certain that I would go to heaven? And the grace of God says yes, but it's not because I'm a good person. It's not because I've done things so well, and that's our struggle. Right? We want to say, if I just do enough, then I know I'm going to be saved. If I just live good enough, then I would feel more confident when Jesus returns that I'm going to go to heaven. That confidence has nothing to do with how you feel. And that confidence has nothing to do with how much we do. If there ever wasn't enough, then we wouldn't need Jesus. It's not about enough. It's not about living good enough, doing enough. What it is is this. My confidence is in the blood of Jesus, which forgives sins. Not my deeds. His blood forgives sins. My confidence is not in the life that I've lived perfectly. No, my, my confidence is in the fact that he gave a promise that he's going to go to a place and prepare it, and when he comes again, we're going to go there together. My confidence is not that I've done everything perfectly. My confidence is in grace, and the only people who will be in heaven with the Father are those who are saved by grace. That's my confidence. But if I have done, as John says, those who believed in the name of the Son of God those who have believed enough in that name to follow that name, to submit to that name, to do what that name demands, those who believe in the name of the Son of God, you may know you have eternal life. Our confidence, brethren, our fixated focus is not on the good deeds that we have done. We're fixing our hope until he comes again on his grace. I know we got a lot of high schoolers here. we got a big senior class, and I'm excited for you seniors and what you're about to experience. There's a question preachers ask, and they've asked it a lot, and here's the question. If you were to die today, where would you go in eternal life? What would your outcome be? And we sang that at 9 o'clock. I want to ask a different question, an equally important question. What if you don't die today? What if you don't die tomorrow? What if you don't die for another 10, 15, 20, 30 years? What will you have made of your life? 
what will you have done with the time that God has given to you? What will you have used with the abundance of grace that God has showered upon you? Asking the question about dying today is important, but here's the greater question. If God gives you a lifetime to live, how are you going to use it? If God's grace teaches us anything as this, don't waste time on things that don't matter. Don't waste time on things that won't amount to anything in eternity. The grace of God has appeared instructing us to deny all ungodliness and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. What are you saying? God gave us today. Let's use it well. God gave us an amazing gift today. He gave us life, and so let's honor him by living this life in a way that would please him. And if you've not given your life to Jesus, that's your number one commitment today, right here today. We've got some, you're here this morning, and you've not made that choice. Today needs to be that day, because today is the day the Lord has given to us. Scripture teaches if you turn from your sins, you confess Jesus as Lord, you repent from those sins, you are baptized in the water of baptism that you can be forgiven of your sins, be adopted into his family and live heaven bound. That promise is for you. Because there's some here who haven't made that choice. We're waiting for his return. That promise is for you. Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Are you willing to make some changes in your life? Are you willing to believe in his promise enough to put him on in baptism and to become his child today? That's yours. And for any here who have not tasted the grace of God, that choice is yours. That call is yours. For the family here who have obeyed the gospel, if there's any here who are struggling, who need prayers or help, this is that great time as a family of God that we can gather together and pray and help. What can we do today to be of help to you that we leave here confident that we're walking home with God? If we can help you in any way, let's do it right now. Let's do it as we stand and as we sing. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can. But thank you for connecting with us.